Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not uh, the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose uh, sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that uh, Abraham's faith was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had uh, by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would uh, be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For it is those, uh, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom, uh, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope. Uh, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it uh, had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. I um, am a fan of boxing, quite a pugilist really, not uh, in the home, lest you are tempted to report me to anyone, but I like the spectacle of the whole event. I'm not sure which part I like best, whether it's the act of pugilism in the ring, or if it's the stuff that goes on before, they both seem to be equal to me. What do I mean? Whenever there is a fight, 
You can pick your era of Mike Tyson, George Foreman, Barry McGuigan, Anthony Joshua, uh, even that strange event of uh, Conor McGregor and Floyd the Money Mayweather that happened easily, uh, just recently. Um, I'm not sure which is the bigger event, that the event in the ring or all the stuff that happens beforehand. It's now become a global market, the marketing of a boxing event. It's not just about, it's an event. It's big money, hundreds of millions of pounds are not just bet, but awarded to the, the two opponents. And they start by taunting each other. That wonderful ability of speaking in the third person. The I is never mentioned. It's Floyd, well, I do this, and I'm going to do this to him. And they never speak about themselves in the first person. It's always the third person. This kind of depersonification that happens. And they start by taunting. Then they make big, grand claims. I'm going to knock you down. They're always American. Even if you're English, you speak an American accent. I'm going to smash you in in the first round. Oh, yeah, you're not even going to. There's going to be two hits. I hit you. You hit the ground. They say that, what you say in the playground to a friend, apparently, or even an enemy. But they say it as adults, these big claims that are made. I'm going to spit in your eye. I'm going to land one here. I'm going to do the Huge claims. And it's just showmanship, isn't it? That's how the money is made, even before the first blow is felt or dealt with. There's been this legal debate that's happening in the book of Romans. Paul boils down the gospel. It's so helpful. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, the good news, the light that's in such contrast to the darkness of chapter 3 and the preceding verses. And he boils it down like a cook, mixing all my metaphors already, to say we're justified by faith through the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. No other good news under heaven or earth. We're justified by faith in the finished work, the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. For all sinners who trust in him, there is rescue and salvation and security. And then in chapter 4, this faith, this living personal relationship with the king of the cosmos. There's a contrast that has been happening in a slight kind of murmur. The language gets stronger and the word is repeated. Just like a boxer, boasting comes to the fore. Chapter 3, verse 27, this contrast begins. The uh, opposite of boasting in the language of Paul is the life and way of faith. Chapter 3, verse 27. It's not just there, just a few sentences later. Chapter 4, verse 2. The opposite of boasting in something you have done is faith in the work, the work of another. Just these two times. Paul is trying to show like a painter in relief or a, a musician with an undertone and a major key. I speak of no authority in music, but you know what I mean. He's saying there are two ways here. You can trust your own strength and abilities and attainment and work and you can boast in what you have done or you come to a realisation of the poverty of all that you have and you must boast in the work of another. It's not just the boxers who boast. We all boast. We all love to take credit for things that we've done, for uh, status that we have. But the book of Romans says... We are justified by faith in the work of another. His name is Jesus and in him alone. And if you boast in anyone apart from the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, you have this deep sickness in your heart. 
chapter 3 calls it sin, chapter 3 and into chapter 4, describes, point number one, the spiritual sickness of boasting. The spiritual sickness of boasting. In ancient times, out of the boxing ring now and into the uh, realm of old warfare, there was the ritual boasting. I mean, how as a king, in the time when battles were not fought remotely with lasers, when they were fought on horseback and shields and spears and huge numbers of men going forward into battle, probably not to return, how would you as a king, how would you as a chief, how would you get people to uh, be up for the, the battle? You would do it by boasting. You would do it by taunting. You would do some sort of thing. By tonight, their king's head will be on our banner. We will establish a new beachhead here. We will do something great and marvellous. We will go and take this land, never to be taken from us again. And then all the people would say, hurrah, or huzzah, and do that kind of thing. That's what ancient warfare was like. It was done in a very kind of um, machoistic, boxer-like, but on the war field style to make people have some fight in their belly to curry some favour. If you didn't... <laughs> Like my version of saying it, you could go more eloquently to St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V and you could Google it and you could see Kenneth Branagh deliver it with fortitude and might and passion. It brings a tear to the eye and I want to fight for him and I don't even know what he's fighting for. The Bible takes something that was familiar to the battlefield, this boasting, this taunting, and it brings it far closer home and it brings it to our heart. It says there is a battlefield that we're all on. It's called the world. And how will you face the world? To what strength or resources will you lean on? What foundation will you stand upon? Where will your confidence lie? In whom or in what will you boast? Because every human heart, the Bible describes, well, every human heart has this sickness. We all boast in something. And it's there as an undertone, not just in the writing of Paul in Romans and his masterpiece, it's there in the whole Bible. I was thinking this week of Gideon. Gideon in Judges chapter 7. Gideon is leading the Israelite army out into battle. There's no huzzah or hurrah, but there is a prayer that he says and God challenges his thinking. He says, God, please help us to defeat the awful Midianites. Judges chapter 7, and then God responds to him in a very interesting way. Judges 7 verse 2. God says, the people who are with you are too many. You've got thousands of people. The people who are with you are too many. For I, says God, for I deliver the Midianites into your hands. Israel will boast against me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. You've got too many people. I don't want you to have self-confidence. I, I don't want you to boast in your own military might or strength. I want you to have confidence in me. Therefore, send loads of men home because I am the one you're to boast in. That's the whole <laughs> essence of the spiritual sickness of sin that we have, of thinking we can do it, thinking we're great enough, thinking if we join hands, we can make a world a better place. And the Bible says you can't. You cannot do it in your own strength. We're not strong enough. We're very weak. And let's return to Romans and trace the theme. It's there in chapter 1, verse 30. The Gentiles are boasting. They're boastful. 
It's there as the legal volume turns up in chapter 2, 17 and 23. The Jews are standing firm in their own religious status, in their ethnic identity. We are good enough. We can please God. And then chapter 3, Paul says, no one is good enough. No, not one. We're all under condemnation. We're all in the dock. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, uh, relying on your uh, Jewishness. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Glad that you're not a Jew, thinking that you're a moral person. We're all in the dock. And the Bible and Paul is saying, everybody boasts in something. Everybody is confident in something or someone. This is how it can work. When you're criticized, Wow, well, how do you respond when someone attacks you verbally? Where is your sense of security and self-justification? It could go like this. How dare you say that? I know that I'm a good parent. Look at my children. That was my wife laughing. <laughs> I'm a good employee. You can't say that I'm worth nothing. I've worked for this company for so long. Look at my credentials. I know I'm not a great person, but I'm a good person and I'm far better than them. Or like chapter 2, I am part of Surrey. I'm a National Trust member. I go to Polson and listen to jazz on Sunday afternoons. I'm pretty respectable. I'm better than they are. You can do it ethnically. You can do it socially. You can do it politically. Those awful Brexiteers, those awful Remainers, whichever way. You look at it, and it's always looking over the line and justifying yourself and boasting, well, I'm not that great, but I'm better than them. That's how boasting works. Every human heart has the spiritual sickness of boasting, of taking a good gift of God, beauty or handsomeness or strength, and relying, taking something that God has given as a good gift to you and turning it into an idol and boasting in something that God gave. And rather than giving grace and gratitude to the giver, we think that we can stand in our own strength. We boast, and everybody has this spiritual sickness. It puffs you up. It makes you arrogant, and God didn't want that. He didn't want it for Gideon. He said, send them away, because I want you to have confidence in me. And Paul doesn't want that for us, which is why he makes this point very subtly to say, who do you boast in? And then he presents for us the antidote. If that's the sickness... This terrible sickness of boasting. Paul now, as we look at the passage closely, he says there is an antidote available to boasting. It's not boasting in your own strength. It's faith in the person and promises of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. Here's the antidote. Chapter 3, 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? Now, of course, that wouldn't be the case, because if it was on keeping the law, you'd be able to boast about others who didn't keep the law and look down on them. So he continues, no, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. That's example number one. Here's example number two, chapter four, verse one. What then shall we say of Abraham, the main character of this chapter? Was Abraham justified by works, what he did? If he was, then he would be boasting, because that's the ultimate boast, that God is in his debt, so to speak. God, you owe me. Paul says, no, you've got it completely wrong if you think that. Look at sentence three. Abraham knew better. Romans 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. There is this financial word, logizomai. It's here five times in six verses, verses 3 to verse 8. And it's this uh, intellectual discussion, how does someone get something? Is it, well, how does someone get money? And there are two ways. Number one, verse four, you can receive money if you've done a hard day's work. You will have a credit, a back transfer to your bank at the end of a day or week or month because you have worked and a worker is worth their pay. So firstly, verse 4, you could be paid because of wages, verse 4. Here's the second way, verse 5. What about if you don't earn the money, but someone gives it to you? You're not a worker, but you are a receiver. And Paul is saying that, looking at Abraham from Genesis 15, that is how every believer is rescued and saved. God justifies, not people who earn it, like a worker, people who are un just people who are ungodly those are the people who by faith receive God's grace and are righteous in Jesus are justified in Jesus it's not earned it's a reward not for what you've done but for what Jesus has achieved it's a free gift it's God's graciousness on display on the cross, not for morally upright people, not for religiously uptight people. It's for people who recognize they have nothing to offer God. But God says it's a free gift because Jesus Christ has paid everything for you. It's credited to your account. Five times in six verses, that word comes up. It's a free gift. It's credited, it's credited, it's credited. Not for work you've done. It's a free gift. But then there's a second word, making a similar point, verses 6 to 8. Abraham's the main character in the chapter, but here's David, the Old Testament, not patriarch, that's Abraham, but here's the Old Testament king. The king of kings in the Old Testament sense is David. Look at verses 6 to 8. Three times in parallelism, the same point is made. Our transgressions are forgiven. Let's say that a different way. Our sins are covered. Let's say that another way. Our sin the Lord will never count against us. So your paid rewards, that is something that for something you've not earned, that's a free gift. And now you're given a righteousness that covers your sinfulness. It's uh, David had, David's version of what Abraham said. This uh, righteousness... Is, the, uh, is a way of saying applause or approval. It's the honour, it's the reward. It's a, an accolade that is given to you in some way. And so that's the antidote from verse 27. Where then is boasting? On what basis are you going to boast when you've received a free gift? We're in this legal sense and this legal courtroom from chapter 2. And he's saying to the Jews, you cannot boast in your ethnic status. You cannot boast in circumcision. What you need, end of chapter 2, is circumcision of the heart. You need to receive this heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. Your praise, chapter 2, verse 25, is from men, not from God. And God is the approval, that the only one that counts. 
everybody gets their praise from men. What we all long for is praise from God. And Paul isn't saying it's bad for us to want praise or renown. He's not saying that it's bad for us to want approval or recognition. But he's saying, where are you going to get that from? We all want it. We all want to uh, be cheered on by someone as if we were running a race. But don't build your identity on people praising you because they will always let you down. Don't build your identity on anything else other than Jesus. Jesus is the one who justifies. Jesus is the one who approves you. Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one who rescued you. Jesus is the one whose righteousness is credited to your account. If you build your life on anyone or anything else, you'll always be distorted. You'll be puffed up. You'll be uh, in bondage to what they say. When people are big and God is small, you'll always be in the wrong. You'll always be in debt. You'll always be bound to what they think about you. It will crush you. There will always be conflicts. You'll always be in slavery. And if you ever lose that smile from someone else, you'll want to make an end of your life even. It's that serious. But there is a type of praise that doesn't puff up, but humbles. There is a type of praise that doesn't rot your soul, but gives you life. And it's the praise not from people when they are big, but it's a praise when God is big and when people are small in the right way. And that's why Paul's been saying, end of chapter 3, you are justified by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the minute you get that, you are freed from the approval of men and women. And you have the applause and the approval and the justification and the righteousness of the king of the universe. Paul's been talking legally, but I'm sure as well there's the undertone here of saying, you have the approval of God, not just the legal standing in Jesus. Because of the legal standing in Jesus, God's face smiles upon you. He set his affection and love upon you. That's one way to destroy, take a nuclear bomb to your inferiority complex. People may look down upon you. You may be very low in the social pecking order. You may be um, very junior in a uh, work environment, but God loves you. And his face smiles upon you. And he is proud before the Father in Jesus to own you. That drowns your pride. It humbles you, but it enables you to walk with confidence. Not afraid what people will say about you. It enables you to have a, a handle on the world. Because you've got the approval of the only one who counts. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory puts it this way. It is written that we shall stand before him, before God. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Jesus Christ that we shall please God. It seems impossible. It's a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It means a good report with God, acceptance, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door that we've been knocking on all our lives will open at last. That's the spiritual sickness of boasting that we have. And that is the antidote. The approval of one. So how do you take it? If 
boasting is our sickness, and if Jesus is the antidote, how do we take it? Well, we need to look at the third point, which takes us all the way back to the first book of the Bible. To take this antidote, to get it into your system, so to speak, is to begin to see that your approval is not rooted in the praise of other people, but it must be rooted in the praise that comes only from God. And so Paul wheels out patriarch Abraham to say, you've got to get to grips with this person and the spiritual promises that God made to him and the spiritual blessings that belong to every believer who are part of Abraham's family now. You need to see what it cost him. You need to see the cost to get an understanding of the praise. The skeleton of the passage Behind it, the foundation of it is Genesis chapter 15, when God spoke to Abraham, and when, for the first time, Abraham got it. The promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 were were longer away, were far away, were distant to him. But in Genesis 15, when God comes close to him for a second time, it's as if the penny drops and Abraham grasps what God was saying. And so Paul quotes this sentence in verse 3 of chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. This is from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And let me remind you of the story. Abraham comes to God after Genesis 12 and says, you've promised me all these great things. You're going to make my name great. You're going to give me a new land. You're going to protect me. You're going to make me into a great nation. But how do I know you're going to do it? Can I take you to the bank, God? Can I trust you? Can I leave everything for you? He's already done that in part in Genesis, 20, Genesis 12. He, he left everything and went out, not knowing where he was going. But how do I know? And in Genesis 15, a chapter we know pretty well, God says, I want to make a covenant with you and I want to write it upon your heart, so to speak. Let's get some animals and let's make a corridor. Let's chop them in half and let's divide and make a bloody corridor between animal pieces. And it's a way that they would write a covenant before the legal system was invented to say between two people, if you break this covenant, if I break this covenant, may we be as the animals. May we be ripped apart. May we be hung, drawn and quartered and put in the tower, a modern kind of way of saying it. And Abraham, I'm sure, was expecting with the bloody pieces on the floor, he was expecting for God to say, now you walk through the pieces. You go first and I'll be right behind you. Because Abraham, if you don't keep the covenant, this is going to happen to you. But then God appeared to Abraham before that happened with the pieces on the ground in a smoking fire pot. His glorious presence was just there. And God went through the pieces and Abraham did not. It's a remarkable Old Testament foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus. I promise that I will bless you, Abraham. You can take me to the bank. You can trust me. And if I fail on one promise, may I be ripped apart. It's not based on your faithfulness, Abraham. It's based on mine. I know you're going to break it. I know you're going to let me down. So I've taken all the initiative and I'll take on all the covenant curses Abraham, you can take me to the bank. I will not let you down. Let the curse fall on me. May I be torn to pieces. And on the cross, he was. On the cross, Jesus Christ was torn to pieces. I was thinking about this week. Just imagine the Trinity. 
to help us look at the cross in a slightly different way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, enjoying perfect unity and satisfaction and love and joy and approval, enjoying one another like a dance. Uh, C.S. Lewis quotes another one of his books. He had all the praise. They all had all the praise, all the adoration in an other-centered way. The very definition of love and delight. Jesus had all he wanted all of the time. Roaring a praise for infinity. And then he came to the cross. And what did he hear? He was mocked. He was jeered. He was struck. He was made fun of. He was mocked. He got boos and jeering and mockery. If you go up to the Globe on the South Bank, kind of they do dress up and they have old style uh, drama once or twice a year. And apparently you can still on those evenings throw the old rotten uh, tomato and throw some old vegetables and just nail the person in a playful way. You know, just want to do it just for the kind of fun of show, throwing a tomato at Mark Rylance or whoever's on the stage. It must be awful when you've put in all this work and preparation for people, literally, if they don't like what you're saying or how you're acting, to throw rotten stuff at you. Hopefully it will miss, but it might hit. On the cross, Jesus lost everything. All his acclamation, all his approval, all his love and joy that he'd been enjoying for all eternity. He was devalued in a way. He got what we deserved. Friends, when Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, that is the ultimate accomplishment. Jesus Christ was forsaken by his Father. Depart from me. Go away from me, son. That intimacy that he enjoyed for all eternity, go away from me. And because of that, we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my child in whom I'm in well pleased. We can hear that because he did not. That's what Jesus did. And that's how he's making a new family from every tribe and tongue and nation, that we're sons and daughters of Abraham. Because Abraham believed and took the risk on God. So too will we receive a new name, Christian. We're welcome into a new land, heaven. We know the blessing and the protection of God. That's what it cost Jesus. And when you see that, when you're convinced of that, that God delights in us because he delights in his son, that we're in him, we're clothed in him, we have nothing to worry about. Death. What about death? Death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Well, actually, it's the best thing that can happen to you if you're a Christian. It won't be easy. It will be hard. But death is the worst thing the world thinks can happen to you. For a Christian, that's redeemed. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's the best thing that can happen. But here's the second thing, and it's quicker. See the cost, but now you have to make an appropriate taunt. Remember the boxing ring? Oh, yeah, I'm going to knock you down in the X round. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this in the other round before the fight, and then something else happens. You need to make an appropriate taunt. Remember the battlefield, the general, we're going to do this, and your head's going to be on a spike. And there is a way the Bible describes, if it's a, a God-centered way, that you can taunt. You are to understand the promises of God and you can taunt, if you taunt rightly, certain things. You can taunt death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where's your sting? The cross has defeated death. 
And Paul writes a taunt that summarizes the end of Romans 3 and the end of Romans 4 in another book that he wrote called Galatians chapter, or the book of Galatians. In Galatians 6, 14, Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast in what? May I never boast in the cross. It's the cross that gives me my identity. It's the cross through the cross of Jesus that I'm counted righteous, that I'm approved of. It's in the cross that I can ground my confidence. It's in the cross that I see my value because Jesus Christ died for me and owned me at the cross. It's the cross that enables me to understand and to disarm the world. I read a story this week, a tragic story of a lady who uh, had a series of abusive relationships with men. She was exploited and in a few cases beaten and bruised by, by men. She knew no boundaries and neither did the men. She just thought, if I could just be in the right relationship, if I could just have a man loving me and longing for me and wanting to be with me, then I'm worth something. She had an awful home background. And so she thought that if I could just be justified, if I could just find approval in men and in relationship, then I'd be someone. She became a Christian remarkably, wonderfully. And her understanding of the world and the relationships with men changed overnight. I started to look at men, she said, and I started to think, maybe you're the guy for me. Maybe I'll marry you. That's fine, but I want you to know something. You're not my life anymore. Christ is my life. You're not my identity anymore. I don't need your love to know that I'm someone. She's taunting. I don't need you. I know who I am in Jesus. I know that Jesus loves me and approves me and died for me. I know what it cost him. So I don't need you anymore. She's disarming the world. She's boasting in the cross. I know how much Jesus cares for me. I know my new identity and it gave her freedom. It empowered her. She can make decent choices with men now. Friends, what is it in the world that you're tempted to boast in? Where's your security? What's the thing that if it's threatened, you want to bite people back on? If it's not Jesus... If it's your parenting style, if it's your retirement fund, if it's your clothes, if it's your car, if it's your postcode, whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, listen to the words of Paul again. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 